Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, coming to you from the studios of the Coming Home Network International. I'm joined as usual by my son, John Mark. Um, Hello, John Mark. How are you doing today up there in Perrysburg, Ohio? Doing well. Happy Easter, everyone. I hope you're having good weather wherever you are and enjoying it. Yep, yep. I think it's better where you're at, John Mark, (laughs) than where I am down here in in, uh, at the home offices in uh, Zanesville, it's a bit, it's a bit cold and damp and dreary. Yeah. But uh, I'm uh, admittedly uh, dropping a, a topic on my son to discuss today. Uh, it's something that I've been working with, yeah. and uh, I'm just excited well, about it, it. Yeah, you brought it up yesterday when we were talking as a staff and um, about some of the things you'd been studying, and I thought it was really fascinating. So I. Yeah, I was hoping that you'd uh, suggest it as a topic. <laughs> well, it comes out of, and, and uh, I suppose you might categorize this episode of Deep in Scripture as one of our verses we never saw mm-hmm. episodes. But this is more than a verse. This is a um, an awakening, if you will, a development in the New Testament that uh, I didn't see before, maybe a bazillion people have seen, but I, I found this absolutely fascinating. And here's the background to how this come about. I, uh, I've said many times that uh, my entrance into the Catholic Church was very much inspired by the writings of John Henry Cardinal Newman. And this may be the year of Newman, because I think he will be declared a saint this fall. And as a result of that, as well as a result of the work that we do, always helping non-Catholic clergy discern whether God is calling them into the Catholic Church, I, I've decided to re-examine now after 25 plus years um, Newman's theory of development. Because in the end, it was his book on the essay of the development of doctrine that convinced me to become a Catholic. And so I'm rereading that. I'm rereading also Ian Carr's wonderful biography of Newman. I'm reading a whole bunch of books in that. And I've been absorbed in that as well as reading scripture, concerned with this idea of development. Now, why is this an important idea? The question that Newman was posing to himself, which was a crisis to him, in the 1830s, he had come from being kind of evangelical awakening as a young man, and then he became an Anglican priest, and he was involved with this movement within Anglicanism called um, uh, uh, the Oxford Movement, and it was basically a return of the Anglican Church to its roots, if you will. And, and uh, the question arose, though, which church, and this is Newman's day, which church passes the test of antiquity? So if you look at your, whatever, now today, whatever church you belong to, Catholic, Episcopalian, Lutheran, Assembly of God, Nazarene, Presbyterian, Baptist, Independent, which church passes the test of antiquity? If one of the apostles, if you will, came back today and visited your church, would they say, oh, I recognize this? And Newman was saying, 
that none of the churches of his day passed the test of antiquity. In other words, that there had been so many seeming changes throughout the 1,800 years from the beginning to the, his day in terms of liturgy and ritual and doctrine and moral practice and all kinds of things, including just language and expression of the faith. How do you explain the changes from Jesus to his apostles to their disciples on through the centuries to now? And there were basically a number of ideas that were floating around that had always been around to explain that. One was the idea of the idea that Jesus had given his apostles, especially in the 40 days after his resurrection, a deposit of faith that was secret and was kept secret but it, it fed the, their preaching and teaching. But it was kept secret for a number of reasons. One, the idea was that there were uh, heretics out there that would, would run with it and, and, and misuse it. But also, they delivered it step by step to catechumens. So these ideas were always there, and then over the centuries came came out as they so developed— that's one theory. That's one right? theory. That's the first one. That's yeah, the first you. theory. Okay. The second theory was that, and this came out of the scholastics and the Thomistic philosophy, and that was it was a, always a logical sequence that Jesus taught something to his apostles who then taught the disciples, and then as things changed in different situations and heretics, blah, 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 new things arose because they were a logical uh, trajectory of kind of like one way Newman or others describe it is that Jesus told his apostles that two plus two equals four. He didn't tell them that four plus four equals eight. But later they realized, whoa, four plus four equals eight. And then later, eight plus eight equals 16. And then later, 16 plus 16. So they were logical developments. Mm. And so a new doctrine in the fourth century, the eighth century, the 10th century was a logical trajectory of something in the mm. beginning. And Newman recognized that there were great flaws in these ideas. And so his idea was that essentially following the idea of how ideas develop right. is that what our Lord delivered to his apostles, the deposit of faith, had implicit in it ideas that would not become realized until later. There were things that he taught them that his disciples, apostles, really had no way of understanding at the time, but later, as the Holy Spirit guided the church, new doctrines, new ideas, new practices would not be new revelation but they were things that were implicit in the original idea that then became explicit. So, for example, if St. Athanasius, and this is the example Newman uses, St. Athanasius came back to 19th century England, mm -hmm. he might hear things that he didn't know, but that he would say, you know, that makes sense. I mm -hmm. see that. That's, a, that's a, a, a true expression of something that came out of how they understood it. And 
So mm. that was essentially the way Newman yeah. described it. You could here's like, uh, one example is you could look at an acorn, mm. and when you look at an acorn, you don't see an oak tree. But that oak tree, that acorn grows to become an oak tree. And when yeah. you see the oak tree, now I understand the acorn. So, I mean, there's a... Yeah, and that's, so it's a good point here in the sense that as you as you started with, as Newton pointed out, that there's been development. It doesn't matter which church, you particular church you think is the church, development ha has occurred. So what theory of development, development of practice and teaching and doctrine, which one makes sense, which one's authentic? And then with that in mind, you can kind of run, rerun the tests of antiquity, but with a, a you know a, a more correct lens to see well what what church really is in continuity with with the teaching of the apostles and the teachings of Christ. And those of you who've followed anything that we do with the Coming Home Network, you know that we've quoted Newman's statement from the introduction to the essay on development, in which he says, "To become deep in history is to cease to be Protestant." Right. And that was a, an expression of Newman's experience. He wasn't saying that everybody that becomes deep in history becomes Catholic. That was not his point. But he, was, but he says in the paragraphs leading up to that, quote, that the more you look at history and you look at how the church has grown, the one thing you don't find in antiquity is modern Protestantism. Right. You don't find a direct connect between what happens in, in Protestant churches and what often Protestants believe and teach, you don't find a direct tra trajectory from the earliest church and not even the, the New Testament. And that's the fourth way that people approach changes over history that Newman mentions, mm -hmm. and that is that one of the problems is when, when many Christians look at history and don't have a way of explaining it, yeah. they decide to just ignore history. Right. And so that's why there are so many Christians that basically, if you ask them about the history of the church, they'll go from Acts, the New Testament, and then jump to the founder of their particular tradition, whether it's Luther or Calvin or John Wesley or whomever. Right. Uh, they, they know very little history between the New Testament and their present founder, and part of it is because how do you explain the changes? And so you have also, and I guess a fifth way is people say, I'm only going to do what Acts chapter 2 says. Our church is going to be the New Testament. And the truth is, whenever anybody tries that, they cannot avoid yeah. the interpretation of that into a culture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the classic thing where you say, I'm not going to be, uh, I'm not going to have a pope. I'm not going to interpret. I'm just going to do what the thing says. But you can't do it without making an interpretation. Because you're even there, you're deciding what to draw from, how wide or narrow your scope is, you know who who you're listening to, what your influences are, and many you know many things under the surface that you can't detect in terms of your own baggage and your own prejudices. So you, no one can come at this fresh. Everyone is aligning themselves with one interpretation or the other, one one history, one continuity, one way of interpreting the development. So the question is, which one is which one is right? Which one is authentic? Yeah, and it comes down to mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. I mean, yeah. Lord, forgive me, because yeah. I am blind to the baggage that I bring when I think I'm interpreting Scripture purely. Right. No, I'm seeing through lenses, many of which I'm blind to. And that's been the problem for 2,000 years. Right. Now, what we're going to do today, this is what's exciting. Okay, mm. 
The question is, how does a modern church pass the tests of antiquity? And the idea behind that is you've got the New Testament church, and then you have 2,000 years or whatever, 1,960 years or whatever, of development, however you explain it, to today, or thousands of different traditions today. Let's don't deal with that. Let's just deal with the New Testament and recognize that even within the New Testament itself, there is radical development that was not anticipated Mm -hmm. by the apostles. And that's what we're going to look at today. And it's good. I believe that our text that we're going to look at today, we're not going to give them a detailed exegesis because there's too much time, I mean, too much stuff and not enough time, but we're going to demonstrate the necessity for the authority of the church based on the apostolic tradition passed on through scripture tradition in the magisterium. Or even by looking in the book of Acts, we can get way off base. Mm. And we're going to look at Acts, we're going to begin with Acts chapter 10, verse 34 through 48. And then we're going to jump to Acts 15. Now, let me, again, I'm still going to have to gab for a little bit because I want to give you the context. We're, we're looking at a sermon preached by Peter, if you will. And it's in, the, it's in chapter 10 of Acts. And if you want to get the background, background to what we're talking about, you really need to read the entire chapter 10 of Acts. This is considered by many the most crucial turning point in the history of the early church. Because up until chapter 10, when Jesus had sent forth his apostles, and you have Pentecost, and then you have the beginning of the church, and Jesus has ascended, of course, before that, and then you have the, the, the Peter and James and John, and then Paul, as Paul in chapter 9 is knocked off his horse, and he's of course, the cool thing about Paul is, as he's chapter 9 of Acts, and he has this awakening, and he goes out trying to teach everybody, and everybody rejects him, so they send him off to Tarsus. So in chapter 10 of Acts, Paul is on sabbatical. He's way away. Now, up until this time, the missionaries, the, the new missionaries, are only preaching about Jesus to the circumcised Jews. And that's all they've been speaking to. And what we see in chapter 10 of Acts is the conversion of the first Gentile. Mm. There are other stories. There's two others. There's the Ethiopian eunuch and another guy that kind of may look like they were the first ones. But traditionally, Cornelius is seen as the conversion of the first non-Jew. Now, the whole story is, you know, Cornelius is a centurion um, who fears God, which means he was um, a a follower of the Jewish faith, but he wasn't a convert, so he hadn't been circumcised. But he was a God-fearer, and he loved God, and he prays to God, and God answers him, and he has this dream of Simon. Then Peter has a dream, it's with the sheet and all the animals, that totally awakens Peter and confronts him to an idea he, he was repulsed to, and that's eating unclean animals. But in the dream, he's convinced that, and he says, God has shown me that I should not call any man 
common or unclean. Right. If you will, that's a development. That's an awakening. And the point is, that wasn't something that Jesus had told his apostles that they would keep secretly and then eventually reveal because Peter is completely surprised by this. As Paul later will be completely surprised, and as we get to the council in Acts chapter 15 when James and everybody's gathered to deal, what do we deal with this issue? Everybody is blindsided by the reality that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just for circumcised Jews, but is for the nations. Now, had they never been told this? <laughs> yeah. It's like many of the things. You, we look back on it, and, and somehow they missed what now, because of our tradition, what we've been taught, it's clear to us. But you know, we know Christ talked about making disciples of all nations, we see in scripture, you know, all tongues shall proclaim, all knees shall bow. And it was certainly, you know, within Jesus, within Jesus's actions and his words, much of this is, is subtly evident. But we can also see how they're from their perspective with the kingdom and with the Messiah. This was sort of an idea that lay, that lay dormant until the Holy Spirit was really ready to convict them of, of the, the deeper truth about evangelizing the world. Yeah, in fact, after the resurrection... And there they are gathered, and um, uh, what's the first thing that the apostles ask them? Uh, uh, Jesus, at this time, um, are you going to establish the kingdom? <laughs> Jesus, you guys still don't get it, you do you? <laughs> you don't get it. You don't get it. The, the, there are many prophets, and we're going to see in a moment one of them, that many of the prophets were telling Israel that when the Messiah comes, when, when God establishes his kingdom, it'll be open to all nations. Duh. There it is. It isn't a secret deposit of faith. It isn't a logical progression. It's an implicit reality from the beginning of the gospel. But they didn't see it. And so what, how did they have to see it? Well, here's what happens. So Cornelius, has, who loves God, his prayers are answered. Peter has this dream, and they come together. And here's what Peter says, and this is beginning in chapter 10, verse 34. And Peter opened his mouth. I love the way they describe things. And Peter opened his mouth. You know, and, and there's, <laughs> I'll tell you what's neat about that is especially when you're in the midst of a development yeah. in which you've been preaching for... Now, you understand, this probably happened at almost 10 or 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ mm -hmm. because they estimate that the consul in Acts chapter 15 happened around the end of the 40s. Mm -hmm. And if Jesus rose, died, and resurrected around 30... So we got 15 or so years. So right. they've been going out and preaching and, and, and bringing in, you know, that Acts chapter 2, 5,000 people convert, and then later. So you have all these people, and they're preaching. Mm -hmm. And if a, if a publisher had cornered Peter and James and John and said, I want you to, you need to put a book out on this, on what you're preaching, <laughs> they would have put books out, and he'd be standing there realizing, oh, no, 
what I said in those books wasn't all correct. Those books would have only said that the gospel went to the circumcised Jews. And now he realizes, oops, oops, I didn't see it. But that's when he says, you know, he said, I said, God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. What I wrote in volume two of my dissertation was wrong. That's what he's admitting here. And so the fact that Peter opened his mouth was his way of saying, mea copa, mea copa, mea maxima copa. I was wrong. And then he said, here's what he says. Truly, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, that in it, simply that was a confession of Peter that has changed the history of the church. I'm a Gentile. You're a Gentile, my son. Mm-hmm. We can go a long way back, and I'm sure maybe there's some Jewish blood in there, but I don't know of any. I didn't. I didn't send my DNA off to DNA off to one of those. Uh, <laughs> didn't show up in the in the, the ancestry data that we. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I know I'm with French and English and British. I mean English and Scottish and Irish and and German, but um, we're Gentiles and we're a part of this because as Paul later reflecting on all this as he's over there on his retreat in Tarsus and comes back because the theology of Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians, all that is later than this. Mm-hmm. As Paul is awakened to the meaning of this development, and then he has to take all of his teaching as a Pharisee and translate it through the Sermon on the Mount into this new understanding of the gospel. Right. And so... Peter goes on, you know the word which he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. The word which was proclaimed throughout all Judea, beginning with Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses to all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him manifest. Not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Wow. I mean, it's a powerful sermon. When, when, yeah, it's very powerful stuff. When you think of it in the context of this is a radical development that Peter and Paul and the other apostles did not see coming. Mm-hmm. But they could and should have if they had understood the prophets as well as the teaching of Jesus. What was the great commission of Jesus? Matthew 28. Go make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father. So all nations. Yeah. All nations. Yeah. Did they hear that? No. 
all they heard was the Jews who were in the nation. So when they went out, they went to the synagogues and they preached to the circumcised Jews. Mm-hmm. And at this point, we really don't have the experience yet of Paul going out and getting kicked out of synagogues. That's going to come pretty soon. <laughs> Because then he goes outside the synagogues, and now he's encountering first the God-fears like Cornelius, and then, but the question is, do they have to become Jews first? Do they have to be circumcised? That was the question. They would have assumed at this point that everyone, if there isn't circumcised Jews, then if we're going to the Gentiles, well, then they have to be circumcised. Well, that was an issue. Excuse me. <laughs> That's what. That's why evangelization didn't explode till till after this decision. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it definitely removed one of the barriers to entering the the people of God. Well, the irony <laughs> is that later, Paul would have his sidekick Timothy circumcised uh, because, and it's, and it's like Timothy saying, wait, "Wait a second, why did I have to do this?" You know, because of the new development. You know, why did I have to do this? You know, so, um, so in now, let me pose this to you, John Mark. This is a wonderful sermon, and there's so much we could talk about here, but I'm going to pose to you, why, what is the problem behind some of the statements in this first paragraph? Now, let me read, I'm going to pick out a bunch of things, and I'd like you to explain to our audience the problem behind the just a clear, simple expression of Scripture. Because it says in what uh, I just read, that God had anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power, and that God was with him. Later, that God had raised him on the third day, and God had made him manifest. And he is the one, Jesus is the one, ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Sure. What's a problem you know, in those statements? Yeah, you know, we were talking about this earlier, that this is one of those passages of Scripture that if taken out of its context, out of the context of the rest of Scripture, and taken apart from, you know, this this developing doctrine that's guided by the Holy Spirit in union with the apostles and, and the church, you could take this piece out and say, hmm, that sounds awfully a lot like Jesus is just a man that God has chosen and, and raised up. Um, and of course, that's obviously a famous heresy, you know, insisting that no, Jesus wasn't really God. He was a man and God chose him and raised him up and all that. And so again, that's, this, that's yeah, Arianism, like, Arianism. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So and, again, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say that exactly, John Mark. I mean, that was the problem in the earliest days of the church. Immediately, people would take Peter's sermon right there and then run with it. Right. And they'd go off, and that's why Paul says in Galatians, after he comes back from Tarsus and he's co- kind of rethought all this, and now he's proclaiming it and preaching it and writing about it. Yeah. You know, he said, why are you people so quickly running after other Gospels? Mm-hmm. That's in Galatians already. Right. People are running with it. And then you have so many different early heresies of the understanding of the relationship between God the Father and yeah. Jesus the Christ and the Holy Spirit. And, you know, and here we have, this is Peter talking, and we know of, you know, from earlier in the Gospels themselves, Peter with, you know, with the Holy Spirit in him, he confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. And so we know if someone were to have come to, to Peter on this and said, well, are you saying that, that Jesus is just a man? He'd say, no, 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 no. And he'd give him the full context. But of course, you know, another aspect of this passage, both this from Acts as well as um, uh, Acts 10 and then Acts 15, is that 
the people involved here. This isn't a development that just happens by some random believer. No, these are the apostles. It's in the apostles that Christ gave this teaching authority, that it's through them that the Holy Spirit inspires them to this, this deeper under, development of their understanding of the truth that were preached to them from Christ. So Peter realizes first in a dream, he's convicted by the Holy Spirit that God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. And then he meets with Cornelius and, and his family and, and, the, and the gathering. He makes this statement and he says, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Mea culpa, mea culpa. Mea, I mean, I'm, that's what I'm hearing in Peter. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, 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 he then gives the, the history in a nutshell of, of Jesus and he says, and to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone. Whoa. And then scripture goes on. While Peter was still saying this, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, in other words, the Jewish circumcised, the regular folk that they're thinking, whoa, 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 wait a second who came with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Whoa. So this wasn't Peter and his followers sitting down philosophically coming to a logical sequential conclusion that, I wonder yeah, we ought to do this, you know, and and pray that the Holy Spirit comes up. No, they weren't even there yet. They've been awakened, right. and the Holy Spirit zapped. Yeah, these people. Yeah. I, I feel like the emphasis, and, and I, I confess that I have not read the, the Newman text that you're drawing from, but I I would imagine that the the distinction between the merely logical development of doctrine and what Newman is proposing here is that. Um, the, the kind of development that Newman is proposing is one that is assuming and looking to the Holy Spirit being an, a continued active presence in the life of the church. Because if it was merely logical, then, you know, at the beginning, Christ and the Holy Spirit gives this data, and then we're kind of left on our own to think it out. And, it, and it's purely by our, yeah, how much brain power we can pour into it, how many computers we can get working on the problem. And it's simply a matter of of teasing out the details rather than, well, there's certainly some logical connection. I mean, everything, every bit of doctrine, it, we can logically and reasonably look back at how it, it is within continuity of the original teaching. But there's more than that. It took the Holy Spirit active in Peter, active in the, in his uh, Jewish brothers and sisters, and active in these Gentile converts to confirm this, this deeper understanding of what they'd received and to, to confirm it so that they, they recognize the truth of it and could pass it on and carry it further. Yeah, the first theory, which was there was a secret catechism, if you will. Right. Then development was a function of memory mm-hmm. you know that in the 15th century were they correctly remembering what had been passed on <laughs> right the logical was a function of intellect ah yeah Newman's view no it's a function yeah. of humility yeah. to the Holy Spirit yeah that's what it is 
it's mm-hmm. a, it's it, it's a a malleability yeah. to the working of the Holy Spirit, and that's what's happening here. Right. It's a bit of the both of the first, in the sense that part of it is simply memory of passing on what was received. Um, part of it is, you know, applying the reason that God's given to us, but but humility above all, humility, submission to the Holy Spirit, you know, being true to that God remains active and involved and, and that he is guiding this. There's no um, specific teaching in the New Testament, in the Bible, about abortion right, or contraception. So it isn't merely something that was secret that was eventually released later, Mm -hmm. nor was it merely a logical progression, though there is some of that. Yeah. It's really the Holy Spirit guiding the church to help them understand murder that applies to an unborn fetus. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think that's a great example, too, because I think precisely in that example, we can see why if it was merely a matter of logic— We'd be man. We would be stuck, and, and this is what we and this is what Holy Scripture kind of tries to do. It says it's all there in Scripture. You just got to be smart enough. You just got to study it enough, uh, and then and and the only reason that you disagree with me is that the Holy Spirit's speaking to me and not you. And I've I've studied more than you have or whatever. But we need something to that, that can enter into those theological discussions, those philosophical discussions and confirm a theory. And that's what we have in the church, that we, there can be a lot of theological debate. And, you know, and in the 60s, there was a whole lot of theological oh, debate about, yep. about these issues of life. But we needed a church that could eventually come down and speak very prophetically through, through Paul VI and say, no, this, this is wrong. Life is valuable and precious, and, and we're not going to contracept, we're not going to abort. Jesus had said in John chapter 14, 15, 16, he didn't say, okay, guys, here's the list of the secrets I want you to protect and then let out as you feel necessary. Nor did he say, here's, here's A, B, and C, and then, uh, and then logically figure out D, E, F, and G. No, he said in don't John— Don't get it wrong. Huh? <laughs> and don't get it wrong. There you go. Uh, <laughs> right. John, he instead he said in verse chapter John 14, the counselor of the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Later in, in uh, 16, he says, when the Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. So we have the memory and we have the the humble acceptance and malleability of the apostles as they respond to the Holy Spirit as the church grows and spreads like a mustard seed into a big bush. And that was the promise of the kingdom. Yeah. And so, John Mark, as you pointed out, without this, people, it's sola scriptura, people can take this and end up with Arianism. You know, this was God choosing a man. No, you know, that we need to listen to the Holy Spirit guiding the church as the church is challenged, and that's why the church, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, eventually understands that God is three in one. Right. And what that means, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, well, what does that mean? How many wills does he have? You know, you know how did he, did he, you know, all that, the church guided by the Holy Spirit, had to work all that out, and then other things throughout time. One of those things that came out of time is how, how do we, what is our relationship with people who've gone before us, who've died? That's a development. 
to understand that I can ask for the intercession of, of saints who've passed away, the martyrs. That's a development. As they understood, it's not clearly said in the New Testament anywhere, but they learned that they realized that they aren't dead, they're alive, and they can intercede for us. Well, and, and so you could, thinking of this in terms of things like, um, you know, not strictly doctrinal things, but practices, traditions. Our last episode, we were talking about Holy Week traditions. Um, we're told in scripture, uh, and you can give the chapter and verse, uh, that, uh, you know, you, you, you measure a tree by its fruits. And so, yep. you know, when we talk about certain, you know, devotions and, and practices of ways of praying, different prayers, different, different modes of praying to God, these aren't a logical progression from what we find in a particular scripture necessarily. And they're, they look very different in, in, uh, you know, Eastern churches that look very different in Africa. They look, they look very different in South America, even though we're worshiping the same God, even though we're all Catholic and we, we have the sacraments. And so there's still there too, there's an active, you know, dynamic presence of the Holy spirit that works within the church to, you know, to, for these to develop, for them to be discerned and for them to be confirmed. That's part of the life of the church too. And so, yeah, some of the practices, some of the prayers might look very different. You know, uh, the apostle might not necessarily, rem you know, that where did that rosary come from? Yep. But it's in the active dynamic life of the church where that that is in continuity. It fits the doctrine. It fits the teaching. But it's also a work of the Holy Spirit bringing about new fruit, uh, new expressions, new ways of approaching God in our day. Yeah, I, there's a, a statement that's accredited to Augustine mm. that says— and I wish I knew Latin, but I don't. Uh, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, diversity. In all things, charity. Yeah. And the importance of that statement is recognizing who decides what's essential right. and non-essential. Mm -hmm. And that's where this de development guided by the Holy Spirit helps the church understand what is essential here mm -hmm. and what's non-essential. In other words, you have some people saying, well, Jesus was just a human being that God raised up, pointed, right. guided. Right. And the church says, no, mm -hmm. that's not a diversity. Right. No, it's essential that we recognize that's a wrong understanding of Jesus. Mm. And the church you know, says there are some things you can't go to. At other times, like the rosary or mm -hmm. devotion to the Sacred Heart, or, or or the Jesus Prayer, or or specific, you know, fasts and abstinences, different practices of the church. Yeah, there we have diversity that uh, we are called to live together in love. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, and accept that there's diversity here, but there are some things we know that are essential, right. and in this particular case in in Acts, J Peter is being hit with an essential. Yeah. yeah. And that's why it took him a bit to open his mouth. Because <laughs> when he opened his mouth, he was taking a stand, a bold stand on a new way of understanding that was going to cause problems. And that's what it did. Because yeah. not only did he, did he proclaim this new development on what the prophets had meant and what Jesus was saying, but they didn't get it. And now he yeah. sees it. It takes God's uh, two by four to awaken him. Yeah. him. And then that's confirmed by the act of God with the Holy mm -hmm. Spirit awakening these Gentiles. Mm -hmm. Now Peter has not only, now he's got to act in the name of the church. And what does he do? 
The next verse, then Peter declared, Can anyone forbid water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Here we have a major change. Yeah. They're baptized. They're fully a part of it. And there's nothing in here. Peter doesn't say, uh, we better circumcise them first. They're baptized. Now, it, they don't know yet. Here's the problem. This led to a, a major problem because later the word was called given to the group called the circumcision party. And we see that in the beginning of Acts chapter 15. Um, because it says in verse 1, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, just pause for a second. Are these bad Christians? These are Christians saying this. Are these bad guys? What are they? These are what's called traditionalists. In other words, traditionalists that hold to Scripture alone. This is what Moses said. This is right. what he wrote down. And it says in the Old Testament, there, anyone yeah. to be saved must be circumcised. This is what it said. Right. And that's what Peter was, that's why he took a while for him to open his mouth. Because he knew right. as soon as he opened his mouth, his foot was going in it. And everybody else's yeah. foot. Right. Yeah, and again, on, on any issue in the church, again, you brought up the, the abortion issue. And I think that's a great one because in our century we have... You know, you look back in the in the 60s, we have the second, you know, leading up to that, the sexual revolution. We have all this pressure, even within the church, amongst many theologians, many big sectors of the church saying we need to press on in a progressive direction uh, regarding issues of life and marriage and sexuality. And we have our, the Peter of our day, you know, listening to it, thinking through it and saying no. And the thing is, that doesn't end the discussion because uh, they're they're continue to be dissenters, you know. But but needing to have that prophetic voice in the apostles, listening to the Holy Spirit in this new situation, and saying, "No, this is an essential. We will not contracept. We will not abort, etc." And so we will maintain the the dignity of marriage. And so, yeah, this is such an an interesting moment because we see the importance of the apostolicity of the church, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but also the, the necessity, as you said earlier, that the 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 guiding principle for we kind of listening to the spirit has to be humility and recognizing that um, it's, it, we can't be prejudiced in merely, obviously not a, a liberal direction, you know, as some would call it of wanting to innovate, but neither merely a conserving direction of just wanting to stay the way things are. The Holy spirit, we, we, we have to, to trust and be with the church and, and, um, and trust to, you know, an authentic, uh, guidance of the magisterium of the church in protecting the deposit of truth. Yeah, with hindsight, we might look back on the circumcision party as troublemakers, but the truth is, at the time, mm -hmm. they were totally understandable, given right. everything they had ever believed and been taught, to what even Peter and all the other were teaching for 10 plus years. They mm -hmm. were saying, guys, wait a second. This mm -hmm. is changing. This is how do we understand this? And, and they were genuinely wondering, there's a problem here. And yeah. so the point is that who's going to decide what the truth is? Yeah. And it wasn't just Peter. Right. It wasn't just Paul. 
mm-hmm. because it says that they all came to Jerusalem. And in verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And then they have a debate. And in the midst of the debate, the different groups, and then in verse 7, Peter rose and said to them, and he gives them the story of what happened with mm-hmm. Cornelius. And he tells it all. And Barnabas and Paul are there. Because it says the assembly is, is silent because Peter has spoken. And then they listen to Barnabas and Paul as they relate what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. God's not just doing this. Peter's doing this. Barnabas and Paul, it's happening. God is doing something. And then it says in verse 13, after they finish speaking, it says, and this is the, the section that I want us to look at, beginning with chapter 15, verse 13. They're, they're all there, and then James stands up. And James is the bishop of Jerusalem. Right. Now, in the early church, I'm, I'm going to make this, this episode last about four days, excuse me, but uh, <laughs> there's something important. In the early church, what we immediately see, there's, there's kind of two groups of people. There are the missionaries, and there are the local leaders. So you have apostles, prophets, preachers, evangelists that are going out and taking the gospel. And when they go out and they, they get a community, then a leader is established. You know, an elder, a, a bishop, or a presbyter. Sometimes those names are interchangeable in the early days. So some say, well, I thought Peter was the head of the church. No, well, Peter's out. He's evangelizing. He's an apostolic missionary, but he's out and around. But the apostle established to be in the place is James, who's the bishop or president of the church in Jerusalem. And so after they had their big debate, and here Peter spoke, and, and Barnabas spoke, and Paul spoke, and, you know, here it all is, and, and are they going to have a de- democratic devo- a vote on it, as modern denominations do? If they just, you know, I mean, it's crazy. Think about all the modern denominations that are gathering once a year to vote on morality, right. to change morality. And then one year it fails, and next year it fails, and then pretty soon the votes, and pretty soon it wins, and so we've just decided what's more. It's, it's absurd. But that's not what happened here, because it says, right. after they finished speaking, James replied, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon, Peter, has related how God visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. And this is significant. Now James remembers. The Holy Spirit helps James. uh, You remember? And James says, I remember. Because he remembers that in the prophet Amos, and the prophet Amos is talking about the destruction and the eventual coming of the Messiah. And at the end of Amos, Amos says, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up and the rest of men may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who has made these things known from of old. So the coming of the Messiah, this Old Testament, will be to the world, to the world. And James remembers, we were told. We were told. 
It was kind of implicit there all along, but God is now calling us to make it explicit. So that's what he says. He goes on to say, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the pollutions of idols and from unchastity and from what is strangled and from blood. And, and those specific little guidelines would sound kind of strange. Well, that's because these Gentiles were coming out of pagan cultures where these were the pressures in their culture. Their pressure wasn't to be circumcised. Their pressure was to do these things. Right. And so they set guidelines for these Gentile pagan converts. But the one thing he didn't say they had to do was to be circumcised. And so that was the major thing. They didn't have to become circumcised Jews first. All they had to do was surrender to Jesus Christ, and they could be baptized and a member of the family. Yeah, it's just a just a great passage here. And, and you know, I think one thing it should again remind us again once again as you said earlier humility uh, and trust in the holy spirit here i mean we 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 went into a little bit earlier you know the dynamic that we see even today uh that we wrestle with as christians on where is the world going where is the church going you know and, and we see we see some infighting in the church and we see worry and anxiety i think the one thing we mustn't have is an anxiety a, a, a lack of hope that the holy spirit is guiding now, I think we see even in these passages, the Holy Spirit does ask each of us to live our life abiding in Christ, to speak our conscience, to have good constructive dialogue along these things, but also to trust that in the end, the church, guided by Peter, guided by the Holy Spirit through Peter and through the bishops, it, the Holy Spirit will guide the church into truth, you know, and that... So we, we need to pr pr proceed with a confidence that we can we can debate and we can we can wrestle we can pray with these things, but we needn't proceed with fear that the Holy Spirit has abandoned the church. That's the key, you know. That in the end, uh, God's will will be done, and the Holy the Holy Spirit will guard the church, and 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 uh, the gates of hell will not prevail. And here's a great example how in the very life of the apostles, there is development, an yeah. awakening to a new understanding. Were there more developments in the New Testament? Indeed there were. Because that's why many, especially Protestants, have a hard time putting together the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Paul, as well as the teachings of James. And we see there's a development. And, I mean, here we have James. Well, James wrote a letter. And many believe that the letter James wrote and we have in James was one of the earliest books of the New Testament. In other words, before the theology right. of Paul, if you will. And so yeah. we have this development of how to understand the teachings of Christ in the midst of growing cultures as it spreads yeah. out. How do you live the simplicity of, of, the, of, of the Sermon on the Mount? How do you live out the morality that our Lord said? And there we have the questions. And... Um, I wanted to read, maybe close, with a, a quote from Irenaeus in his wonderful book, Against Heresies, which I truly have come to believe is one of the most important works of the early church fathers, uh, written it toward the end of the second century. So now we're talking uh, about a hundred years after this first council, a hundred years the gospel has spread around the Mediterranean, 
Irenaeus is writing up from central France. You know, there's Christians in France and then Spain and even up in England. There's, there's Christians all over the place, up in Germany. We know that. And so he says in, uh, in his Against Heresies, suppose there arise a dispute relative to some important question among us. And so in other words, like Peter, like the battle going on there. Suppose that arises, whether it's in the first century, the second, or the fifth, or the eighth, or the 20th, 21st century. And he says, should we not have recourse to the most ancient churches with which the apostles held constant intercourse and learn from them what is certain and clear in regard to the present question? And so, in other words, the way that Irenaeus and Tertullian and the earliest writers of the church, Augustine, how do you know what's true? Well, you see it as a, a apostolic deposit succession that comes from the churches of the apostles through the succession of bishops. And so that's how we know that this is true. When an idea comes out, where did that come from? Well, we can see it, trace it back. Not word for word, but we see how it was developed, like through the Trinity, through the understanding of baptism, through the understanding of marriage, through the understanding of the sacrament of Eucharist, the understanding of the relationship with the bishops and priests and deacons, the understanding, all this stuff was developed. It wasn't made up. It wasn't just a logical development. It was the guidance of the Holy Spirit through this apostolic thing. And, and Irenaeus says, for how should it be if the apostles themselves had not left us writings? So already Irenaeus, in his book, quotes from almost every New Testament book. So he recognizes their authority. But then he says, would it not be necessary in that case, in other words, if they didn't have these writings, to follow the course of the tradition which they handed down to those to whom they did commit the churches. That's why it isn't sola scriptura. Right. That's why we believe in the authority of the church guided by the Holy Spirit, to make right. sure that we're following what is true. Yeah. That's why the history is so crucial, because the history of the church is the story it's the story of the church. It's the story of the Holy Spirit guiding the church into all truth. And so every bit of it, every step along the way is, is a, again, there's not just, there's not just a deposit of faith that's put in a time capsule and found 2000 years later. Every step along the way, you know, the family of God has, has developed and grown in its understanding and its tradition and its, um, yeah, it's, it's relationship with the Lord. That, that whole history, our family history is important. Yeah, it doesn't mean that all of us are perfect in the church or that every no. bishop or pope or priest or layman or religious are following the teaching of Christ. I mean, I don't think right. Jesus said that bishops should have $5 million houses and 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 want uh, red carpets from their limousines. No, that's not what Christ So we got people that need to remember what the gospel is all about. We know that. That's why we're in a crisis right now. But that's why we have great, beautiful, faithful bishops that are fighting this battle. They're fighting this battle. Praise God. They need our prayers. Mm -hmm. Our good, faithful mm -hmm. priests need our prayers. Our fathers and mothers and family need our prayers so that they can be safely within this apostolic church. Yeah. So, well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I'm going to pass over to you, John Mark. Anything we need to remind them of what's going on in the Coming Home Network? 
Sure thing. Well, thanks again for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. You know, in particular, you know, we want to hear from you, and the best place to actually get in touch with us, to connect with us, and the whole community of the Coming Home Network is uh, via our website, uh, chnetwork.org, but specifically our community site, community.chnetwork.org. And we'd love to hear from you specifically on this topic, you know, these verses from Acts, as well as this issue of the development of doctrine. If you're a convert or if you're someone who's thinking about uh, joining the Catholic Church, if you're somewhere on that journey, man, we would love to hear from you. How does how does this issue play into your journey? How did you encounter it? How has your, your thinking about it changed? What questions do you have about you know, how, how the doctrine and practice develop in the life of the church. We'd love to hear from you. That's community.chnetwork.org. All right. Thanks, John Mark. And thank you for joining us on this episode of Deep in Scripture. We look forward to being with you again next week. Deep in Scripture is a production of the Coming Home Network International. To hear more episodes, view our full archive of written and video conversion stories, participate in our online community forum, and more, visit chnetwork.org. You're also invited to explore free membership in the Coming Home Network and receive support on your own Catholic journey. Again, visit chnetwork.org for more information.